If you will take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 12. We'll be looking at Genesis 12 this morning, 1 through 3, and then we'll jump over to Genesis 15 in just a little bit. Genesis chapter 12. So we are week three of our series we're calling The Big Picture as we're walking our way through kind of a, the grand narrative of Scripture, uh, the big picture, the, the fact that the Bible, we have 66 books in our Bible, but the Bible is not just a randomly composed series of all these different stories, but rather is a very intentional story, singular, one story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And we're walking through, I know you're still thinking, this is week three, that's eight-week series, and you're still in Genesis. We are going to be making some bigger leaps soon, uh, but uh, it's important that we see how these pieces fit together uh, in God's greater plan of redemption. And so in week one, we started with creation, uh, God creating the world. Week two, last week, we considered the fall, the, the entrance of sin into the world and the reality of how that impacted so much. In fact, how it impacted everything. Uh, we now are moving beyond Eden uh, to continue in the narrative as we make our way to a very important chapter of the Bible. In fact, some say Genesis 12 is the most important event until you get to the birth of Christ. I'll let the scholars debate that, but it's significant. Whether it's the most important, uh, who knows, but it's extremely important. So Genesis chapter 12 is where we are today. Next Sunday, Stephen Mason's going to be preaching from Exodus somewhere as he walks through, uh, you know, the importance of God bringing his people out of bondage into the promised land. I'll be away. We'll be away at uh, my grandparents' 70th wedding anniversary down in East Tennessee next week. Married 70 years. That's amazing. Uh, and so uh, we'll be taking part in that next week. But Stephen will care for you well, I'm confident, as we continue this series in the big picture next week. But today we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 12. I want to read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll pray. This is the word of the Lord. We read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you give it to us for our good and your glory. We thank you that you've revealed yourself, that you have shown us from beginning to end your plan and your purpose to bring about salvation to the world. So Lord, today as we consider this important passage, this important marker in your scriptures here in Genesis 12 and the story of Abram, Abraham, Father, we would ask that you give us understanding that we would not just know something historically, but God, that we would see how this is such an integral part of your greater purposes to bring hope to the midst of darkness. And so God, would you open our eyes now and give us understanding that we might know you more and give you glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you think about it, our lives are built on and around promises. Think about all the promises you make or have made, whether it's a promise pertaining to a mortgage payment, your Netflix account, your cell phone bill, or the promise of being somewhere at a certain time. Hey, I'll be there at seven, whatever the case may be vows you make, on and on we go. We, make, we are a people who make promises, aren't we? 
In fact, our lives are, are filled with them. Not only do we make promises, others, other people, count on those promises and will make decisions around those promises. But here's the reality, a common issue that we all experience. The promises that we make are often broken, aren't they? How many times are you really there at seven o'clock when you said you would be? You see, we, we are people who make promises and the reason we make promises, by the way, is because God is a God who makes promises. Being created in his image, we certainly are, are part of, of that plan and that, that reality to, to, to bear his image. And the fact that God is a God who makes promises finds its way out in how we are a people who make promises. But there's a big difference. The promises we make are often broken promises. Uh, we often fail to fulfill our part of the deal. So much of life can be described or explained based upon promises made, promises kept sometimes, and even promises broken. But when we turn to the scripture, what we find is that not only is, a God, is God a God who makes promises, God is one who always keeps his promises. When God has made a promise, you can be confident that he will fulfill the very thing he has, promises, he has promised us. Indeed, it's, it's not a stretch to say this, that the Bible is nothing more than the story of a single promise, from beginning to end. This is what God gives us here. The, the entirety of scripture, the, the coming of Christ to be our redeemer, all of this is based on a promise God makes. We'll continue to walk through that narrative in the, in the weeks to come, but today we want to give our attention here in Genesis chapter 12 in the story, the call of Abram. We know him later as Abraham. So I'll, I'll use those words probably interchangeably in uh, the same person, Abram, Abraham. So the, really the main idea when we think about this text this morning is this. Despite what we saw last week from the Garden of Eden, the, the entrance of sin and now the, the, the curse upon this world, the reality of brokenness, the reality of sin, despite the entrance of sin into the human race, God promises Abram that he would be blessed and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. So you can think about it this way. Last week in Genesis 2 and 3, we saw sin enter the world and cursing take place. God now curses the world and there's judgment upon the man and the woman because of their sin. And now here in Genesis chapter 12, we're seeing that God is now speaking a word of blessing, a, a promise of blessing to Abraham and through Abraham to all the families of the earth, not just his family. So this morning, we're going to walk through this text here, and we're going to jump over to Genesis 15 in just a moment. We're going to see three critical truths about God's promise that really should encourage us, should strengthen our faith and our confidence, and, and just help us walk through life, knowing that God is a God who made promises, and he keeps his promise. We're going to see these three things. We're going to see a promise is given by grace. We're going to see how the promise was received by faith, and how, number three, the promise was confirmed in covenant. Let's begin now, the first one, with a promise given by grace. We're going to see that here in this passage. We're first introduced to Abram in Genesis chapter 11, just the chapter before, and, and you see the descendants of Terah. 
And so Abram is a son. We see that in verse 30, uh, excuse me, in verse um, 27 through 32. But here in Genesis 12, the story really begins to zero in on Abram and his family. We know that he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, a prominent Sumerian city, but now had moved with his father to Haran, which is Northern Iraq, modern day, uh, uh, geographically speaking. So this is, this is where he's coming from. And at some point along the way, we know later on that Abram was 75 years old when this happened, the Lord directly singles him out and calls him to leave his family, to leave his culture, everything that he knew to follow the Lord to a place that the Lord would show him. He's not even given specifics on where he's going. And again, this, this calling to Abram really begins to set the stage for how God would continue to unfold his plan of redemption. And we're gonna see how this, this event is so critical to the rest of the scripture. You, you get to the, the New Testament and they're still talking about the call of Abram, of Abraham. So Abraham is called here to leave and go to an unknown land, at least unknown to him at this point. And then he's given a series of, we would say, promises. See that there, don't we? Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. So he's commanded, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then he gives him promises. He says, and I will make of you a great nation. You know later on that through Abram, the, the nation of Israel would come into being. He says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all, and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so there's this, this series of, if you count them, some count seven promises that Abram is given here as he's called to leave his country, his, his kindred even, to go to a land that the Lord would show him. And he's, he's given these series of promises. But it's through these promises that we need to see how God is planning to restore what was lost in the rebellion back in Eden. We go back to Genesis 3. We've, we've, there's a lot that's happened between Genesis uh, 3 and, and Genesis 12. We know that there's the, uh, the, the story of Noah and the flood. So the flood has already happened. The humanity's been wiped out once except for one family. And now that's re, uh, the, the human population has increased. So there's a lot of time that has transpired between Genesis 3 and Genesis 12. And you get to Genesis 11 and there's the whole issue of the Tower of Babel where the people were seeking to make a name for themselves, building this tower to the heavens, and God scatters them, confuses the languages, and all the rest. And here we are now in chapter 12. And we see that instead of a curse, God is now promising blessing. Again, he's paving the way forward for, for redemption. Remember that in the garden, man had decidedly turned against the creator. Adam and Eve had rebelled against him. Evil came into being and evil continued to increase. The flood happens. Things continue in an evil direction even after the flood. And God had every right to just simply wipe it all away, but he doesn't. He promises that instead of cursing, instead of absolute immediate judgment, that he's going to bring blessing. And this blessing is grounded in his grace. Do you just see a couple of things here about God's grace. First of all, God's grace is found in the choice of Abram. You look at this, this scene, you could ask the question, well, why was Abram chosen? And you're not gonna be given an answer. 
We're not, we're not told why he was chosen. Why wasn't one of his brothers chosen? He had two other brothers we know of at least. Why, why not one of them? Why not somebody else from some other family? Why was it Abram? What had he done to warrant such an opportunity of being the chosen vessel of God through which blessing would flow? And the answer that we have is absolutely nothing. What you have here is really the, the early beginnings of what we understand later is the doctrine of election. God choosing Abram based upon nothing in himself, but simply because of a gracious gift that God extends to individuals. Why choose Abraham? Why not someone else? Why make his name great? Contrast that to those at Babel who wanted to make a name for themselves, and God now chooses Abram and says, I'm going to make your name great. It's going to be through you that these blessings would come, and people are going to remember you all of these years later. This was a gift of grace, God choosing Abram to bring about his work of redemption through the world as it unfolds through the rest of the Old Testament into the New. But you also see not only grace in God's choice of Abram, but grace in God's plan for the nations. Not only would Abram be blessed, these blessings would extend far beyond him. Look at verse three. He says, uh, to those who bless you, I will bless. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you jump over to chapter 13, verse six, I believe it is. Um, he says to him there, he says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. So right here, right here in Genesis 12 and 13, and even we're gonna see it in 15 as well, right here in Genesis 13, you see God's heart, not simply for Abram and his family, not simply for what would later become known as the, the nation of Israel, the people of God in the, under the old covenant, but right here in Genesis 12, you see God's heart for all the nations. He is a God who is promising salvation. He's promising blessing. He's promising hope, not just to a particular family, not just to a particular nation, but to all nations. This is critical. You don't wait till Matthew 28 to get to the Great Commission to say, oh, the gospel's good for everyone. No, it's right here in the Old Testament, Genesis 12, first book of the Bible. God loves the nations. It's quite a promise. God's grace was going to extend to this family and through this family to the ends of the earth. Friends, this is just a reminder to us, even as the church today, that that all nations are designed by God to be intended recipients of his grace. God is not someone who merely reserves his grace for one people group or this people group. His grace is extended to all people groups. And this is why we make it a point here in this church to keep our eyes on the ends of the earth, definitely right here to the ends of our streets. But we need to look beyond that as well to the ends of the earth, understanding that God's plan is to bring about the work of grace throughout all nations, making himself a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. God's plan was not just for Israel. God's plan was for all the families of the earth, and that is an Old Testament teaching. I think it's a good word of warning to us because of what would later happen with, the, with, with God's people in the, under the Old Covenant. Uh, we see that this is God's heart here, and one of the 
one of the purposes for Israel was that they were to be a light to the nations. Yes, they were called to be the chosen people, but it was gonna be through them that God was gonna bless the nations. They were to be a light to the nations and they failed miserably at it because they, they were so stuck on themselves. They became idolatrous and God held them accountable for it. I think it's just a good word of warning that if we're not careful, no matter where, we can say this from, from any point of reference of wherever we may live, but speaking of our own day and time, if we're not careful, I think it's just a good word for us to hear as Christians today. We can, we can get caught up in this whole idea of, of nationalism when we forget the whole, and, and forget the whole uh, understanding that God loves the foreigner just as, he much, just as much as he loves you and me. And if we're not careful, we're gonna let politics kind of dictate and shape our understanding of what God's plan for the nations actually is. So by God's grace, we understand that God is a God who loves the nations and therefore as his people, we are called to love the nations. We're called to love the foreigner. We're called to love those who God loves and extend that word of hope to the ends of the earth. God's choice of Abram was an act of grace. God's choice to bless him and his offspring and the entire world after is an act of grace. So this is a promise that is given in grace. But so number two, we're gonna see how it's a promise that's received through faith. And I'm using this language intentionally because we, we tend to use this language and we're quoting New Testament verses, aren't we? Ephesians 2, which is right here in Genesis 12. A promise that's received through faith. If you jump over to Genesis chapter 15 for a moment, we know that God makes this promise to him and he's 75 years old. He says, you're gonna have descendants, you're gonna have offspring, you're gonna have sons. Well, there's a big problem at this point at least. Abraham's 75 and he has no children. He has no offspring. So if this was going to happen, it was apparent that God was going to have to bring it about. Abram was called to leave his home his family, his culture to go to a place yet to be revealed. And as verse four tells us in back in chapter 12, look, look at what it says. So Abram went, he went. His act of obedience was an act of faith. Notice Abraham doesn't question, at least here in the text, we don't see this. Abram doesn't question. He doesn't ask for more time to consider. He doesn't, he doesn't line things up and see you know, what, what the odds are about him going or staying, he goes. God calls him to go and he goes. We know from Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith hall of fame, there in verse eight, where the New Testament writer is referring back to Abram, Abraham and he says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He went in faith. You know, time went on, but Abram and Sarah would remain childless. And the promise that God made to them seemed like it was an impossibility. Every year that would go by, the promise seemed to grow more and more in doubt. We get to Genesis chapter 15. Let me read verses one through six here. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will, you, uh, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And in verse six, well, Abram, how he responded. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now here in chapter 15, God restates his promise and we're told in verse six that Abram believed the Lord and he counted, he, the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now look what we see so far in the narrative. God calls him, he gives him a promise based solely in grace and Abraham receives that promise by faith. Sound familiar? You don't have to wait till Ephesians chapter two to get the fact that God extends his blessing of redemption and salvation by grace and that promise of salvation and redemption is received through faith. This is an Old Testament concept. It's clarified, certainly get a lot more light shed on it in the New Testament as it centers on Christ. But the seeds are already sown right here in the Old Testament. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter three, verse seven. Verse seven and eight, he says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to who? Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So Paul understood that the gospel though not in its full orb form yet, was preached actually to Abraham. We ought to stop for a minute as we think about Abraham's response of faith. We know from chapter 12 that he went, that was a, his act of obedience was an act of faith. Here in chapter 15, he believes the Lord. He, he, he's struggling and you see that struggle there. Lord, I don't have, I don't have any children. So I'm gonna have to come up with, uh, this person seems to fit the kind of the bill here and the Lord's not, no, you're gonna actually have children through which this promise will happen. And he believes him. He takes God at his word. Despite all the evidence around him, despite the circumstances he's, he's experiencing, despite the things he's seeing with his own eyes, he takes God at his word and he believes the Lord and the Lord credits to him righteousness. Think about Abram's faith. It was not a perfect faith. If you read the entire narrative of Abram, uh, he, he didn't always have a good day. Uh, he, he made some poor decisions along the way. So when we think about him and his faith, it was not a perfect faith. It wasn't always strong. There are times where he takes things into his own hands to try to accomplish things as if he's trying to help the Lord's promise along and it fails miserably. But what we do see that despite the fact that he, had, that he didn't have a perfect faith, despite the surrounding circumstances, he still took God at his word and believed the Lord and the Lord counted that faith as righteousness and credited to him righteousness because of it. It's a good reminder to us to see that Abram's hope was not ultimately dependent upon how strong his faith was but upon the strength and faithfulness of the God whom he trusted. It's a big difference. Abram's hope was not on whether or not he was having a good day spiritually. 
Abram's hope was not on, based upon the fact that he had a, a very robust and strong faith. Abram's hope was based upon the God, the, the one who is truly strong and the one who truly is faithful. That's where his hope rested. You know, sometimes we question whether or not the Lord will respond to our faith because we may find our faith weak. You, you may find yourself struggling at times, maybe not as a Christian. If, if, you're, if you're here and you're not, not a Christian, you may find yourself struggling. Well, I don't even know if the Lord will ever accept me because I just don't know if my faith will ever be that good. Friend, I would just remind you that God doesn't base his assessment of you and bring you into his kingdom based upon how good your faith is. He, he saves you based upon how good he is based upon how righteous he is, based upon how gracious he is, and simply you clinging to him in whatever little faith you have. Even as a Christian, sometimes we, we, we question our salvation, don't we? We would sometimes think to ourselves, well, if my faith were stronger, surely a Christian's faith would be stronger than mine is today. The Lord does not require perfect faith. But we see that even in the midst of the circumstances, even in the midst of, of what seemed to be an impossibility, Abram still took God at his word. That's what true faith is, is taking God at his word. Even what we find here in Genesis 12 through 15, it's an early snapshot of what we call later, what we call later on the doctrine of justification. This doctrine is at the very core of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it describes, this doctrine of justification describes and defines how the guilty can become right before a holy God. We know from Eden on, we're all guilty. So the great problem that we have to solve now is how can guilty, rebellious people now be in a right standing with a good and holy God? It's really what the Bible is going to answer all the way through centering upon the finished work of Christ, but leading us through to, to, to that day is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant pointing us forward to that day, and in Christ, the New Covenant being established. But that's really what we're seeking to answer, isn't it? How can the guilty become right? And what the Bible says over and over and over again is that the guilty become right not based upon their performance, not based upon what you are able to do for the Lord, but based upon the kindness and goodness of God as he extends his grace towards sinners. And we receive that promise through faith. We see that picked up in the, the New Testament. Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter four. We could read all of Romans four, but I just wanna pick up in verse 13. Notice what Paul says so many years later. Looking back, he says, for the promise to Abram, Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Well, it says right there, the promise is not based on your good works. It doesn't come based upon how well you live up to the law. All of us, all of us fall short. In verse 14, for if it's the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. You hear that? The promise is void if you are dependent upon yourself to make yourself right with God. If that's what you're depending on, this promise is voided for you. You, you, you can't earn your way in. Verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. That's why, verse 16, Paul says, it depends on faith. 
in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, right? So we all want to sing Father Abraham right now, right? Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, whom give, uh, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, this is what Abraham's doing, Abraham's doing, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Look at verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So he grew strong in that faith. He didn't have all of the, uh, a strong faith at the beginning. He grew strong in that faith. Fully convinced, verse 21 says, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, look at this, what Paul says, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Same faith that Abraham trusted the promise of God it's the same faith that we're called to ex exercise today. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in what God has given in promise, always. And what a contrast we see from last week to this week. Adam and Eve refused to take God at his word and rebelled and were cast out of the garden, but Abram took God at his word. Adam and Eve sought to cover their sin by making themselves loincloths, fig leaves, a type of works righteousness, but Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's a big contrast. So much begins to take shape here in the narrative with Abram, especially this idea, this teaching that salvation comes to us by promise because of the grace of God and we receive that promise through faith. This idea that the doctrine of justification, how the guilty can become right with God teaches us that God declares the believer to be righteous, not on the basis of his or, own, her, his or her own works, but on the basis of Christ's finished work. Calvin put it this way. He's talking about the doctrine of justification. Calvin said the main hinge, the doctrine of justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. Luther said, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. Paul said it well, didn't he? Said it in, in Romans 4, that if, if it's not through faith, the promise is void. It's all gone. So friend, let this encourage you. You may be here today struggling with how in the world can a sinner like you be right with the God who is so holy and good. And maybe you've been trying, you've been trying your hardest to earn God's favor somehow, some way kind deeds, religious activity. Maybe you think even your attendance here today is part of that, that, that merit that you're trying to store up to, to, to somehow get on God's good side. Friends, 
if you're honest, if, if you're seeking to live that way, trying to store up merit through good works, religious activity, and all the rest, there's never a time you have confidence that you're right with God. If, if that's your approach to God, there's, there's never gonna be a point where you have confidence that you're right before God because listen, there never will be a point that you become right before God based upon your own performance. Bible teaches us clearly that there is nothing you can do to earn his favor. He gives it freely and he calls us to receive it through faith. Even as Christians, this matters a lot. You, you know, sometimes you think about once we've received the gospel, once we receive God's promise by faith, we kind of move on to other things. Friends, even as a Christian, God saves you based on his promise and his provision, not your performance. And that, friends, should overwhelm us. When you consider, when you as a Christian consider that God has accepted you, not based on you, but based merely on his love for you, extended in grace to you, when you think that you as a guilty person have become right in God's sight as a gift of his grace to you, you've simply received the conduit through which that came was faith. You simply received it in faith. Friend, that should overwhelm us. Christian people, listen, I'm speaking to myself here just as much as I am you. Christian people ought to be the happiest people in the world because we understand that we deserve to be separated from God forever. We deserve to be cast aside and yet God has not cast us aside. He's extended his grace and love to us in Christ and he's brought us into the family. He's gonna seat us at his table. And that should overwhelm us. And that's not based on how well you live your life today or tomorrow or yesterday. It's based upon the graciousness of God. Now, that should lead us to live faithfully. We can certainly talk much more about that. But friends, this should overwhelm us with a sense of joy and peace and security. And you know, there's just not much of that in the world today. And as Christians, we, we have been given this promise that God has extended to us ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We have this security because of that. Because there are times when we, we often feel adrift in this world, wondering even who or what we can trust. What truly is true? Who or what is reliable? And what we see here throughout this narrative is that God is saying, you can trust me. God is telling Abram, this is the promise I've extended to you. And, and Abram's looking around thinking, Paul said it, he's as good as dead. He's almost 100 years old at this point, right? And he's like, how's this promise ever going to happen? I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what that's going to mean. I'm just going to believe that God said he's going to do what he's going to do and I'm going to believe him. There are times in our lives where, where we wonder if, if anything can be trusted, if anyone can be trusted. And God is saying here through this narrative is that at the end of the day, he is the one that can be trusted. Abram's, Abram's story reminds us that despite what the situation around you might say, God can be taken at his word and he can be trusted 
to fulfill his promises to us, no matter what the circumstances may seem. So maybe you've been struggling to believe God, even as a Christian. Even as a Christian, maybe this week, maybe this month, maybe this has been a maybe it's been a period of time in your life where you're just even struggling to believe God, struggling to see how His promises make sense when your experience seems to be screaming otherwise. Well, friends, let this story of this 99-year-old man and his barren wife tell us that God can be trusted no matter what your experience or circumstances may say. No matter what your story may seem to be, how it may seem to be unfolding, God's story is unfolding. And you're part of that story. And his word can be taken for what, it, for what he meant and he can be trusted. And listen, if God can be trusted with these big promises like we're given here, God can be trusted even with the smaller things. You take him at his word. It's a, it's a promise received through faith. But number three, it's a promise confirmed in covenant. Promise confirmed in covenant. In, verse, uh, in chapter 15, verses 7 through 21, God reaffirms yet again his promise. But this time he, he goes further and he formalizes it through covenant. He formalizes it through covenant. In verse 7, we read this, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Notice Abram here, he says, but, but he said, O Lord, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? The Lord responded, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers, go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come... Come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoke, smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the uh, Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So right here in Genesis 15, God reaffirms his promise again, but now he reaffirms it by establishing it with a covenant. See that in verse eight, Abram having trusted the Lord's promise, he asks an honest question. Lord, Lord, how am I to know this is gonna go down? The Lord responds by making a covenant. And a covenant, as we see unfolding here with the, the, these animals being divided in half, uh, this was uh, the way in this day and time in which two parties would often solemnize a promise. Killing an animal, dividing it so that the two covenanting parties would walk between the two halves of the animal. And as they walked between the two halves of the animal, they were in essence saying something like, may this be done to me, may I be cut in two if I don't live my part of the covenant. But notice in this covenant, especially there towards 
the end of the chapter, only God passes, passes through between the two halves of the animals. God confirmed this covenant himself, not allowing Abram to walk through. And this covenant would not only be initiated by God, it would be kept solely by the Lord. So this covenant is God's promise to Abraham that his descendants will become this great nation and that they will possess the promised land and that they will be God's people in God's place under God's rule. And that this blessing will extend to even the uttermost parts of the earth. God makes this covenant. We know that even its blessings are received in faith. Now later on in chapter 17, there's so much we could say about this covenant. Chapter 17, we see the introduction of, of circumcision as uh, the sign of the covenant, making, marking the, identifying the, the people of God. And this sign of circumcision was to be a graphic reminder that covenants are solemnized through blood. Again, we're laying a foundation. We're, we're looking now in the present as we're gonna look forward and how Christ comes to fulfill all of this. But we see that in chapter 17. We're gonna see also how the Bible emphasizes a circumcision that's, that's different than the physical circumcision. The Bible talks in Old and New Testament alike of how there's this need for the circumcision of the hearts. In fact, in Colossians chapter two, you can read about it in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, but in Colossians two, verse 11, Paul says, in him also, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there's this circumcision of the heart that's needed. There's the, even Christ is, uh, it talks here about the circumcision of Christ. He was cut off for our sake that we may be brought into the kingdom. We know here as we read throughout this, this, uh, the Old Testament that the old covenant sign was circumcision, marking the, the, the people of God. And later on, we would have a new covenant that's established. We know that the sign of that new covenant is baptism. There's a continuity between the covenants, but there's also discontinuity between the covenants because the new covenant's new. It doesn't look like the old one. And so we need to understand that there's, there's a lot going on here behind the scenes and we'll see how some of this uh, is, is clarified in later weeks. Covenant is given and the covenant sign in chapter 17 is given. And so we know that later on in, in, in the new covenant, as I said earlier about Christ being cut off for our sake, we know that as he, as he hangs on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as he was being cut off temporarily from, from his father that we might be brought in. Paul brings all this together in Galatians 3, verse 27. He says, for as many as you, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Heirs according to promise. So all that Paul is saying there when we get to the New Testament is that once Christ has come and once he has given his sacrifice once and for all, that when those who trust in that sacrifice by faith, what we're demonstrating is that we are heirs of Abraham according to promise. Just as Abraham believed God's promise in Genesis, when we believe God's promise now fulfilled in Christ, we are all in the same boat. We are all in the same family as heirs. 
Friends, if you're here today and you've not trusted in Christ, the Bible teaches us that in the very same way that God comes, came to Abram, he comes to us, but he comes through a much different way. We know that you and I have done nothing to deserve his amazing promises, and yet he makes promise to us. He promises salvation, he promises life, he promises everlasting joy, security, hope, and all the rest. And he does so simply because it pleases him to do so. And we're called to simply receive that promise by faith. And so friend, if you're here today and you've not, you've, you're not following after Christ, and you're wondering how can I ever be right with a holy God, the Bible is making that crystal clear. If anything else has not been clear to you at this moment, let this be. That the way that the guilty become right before God is not trying to make their way to him, but simply receiving the gift of grace found in Jesus Christ because listen, he fulfilled everything that was needed. He obeyed perfectly and yet he died on a cross shedding his blood so that your sin could be forgiven. You'd simply cling to that in hope. This is how we take God at his word and believe his promise and are accepted into his family. Friends, God has promised and he always keeps his promises. Well, eventually, at age 99, Abraham and Sarah would have a son. Miraculously so, but they have a son and his name would be Isaac. And through Isaac, the promise would remain intact. Through Isaac would come Jacob. And then later on, we have the story of Joseph in, in, the, rest of the, in, in the rest of Genesis and how the people of God end up in Egypt. But as we will see, this story continues to make its way from a barren woman named Sarah to a virgin named Mary. And God's word of promise all the way back from Genesis chapter 12 will indeed remain intact, even when all of the circumstances around, around it all seem to be screaming otherwise. God keeps his promise. God keeps his word, even when it seems impossible. You know, as we think about all of this, God's word, as we've seen so far, has created. God's word has commanded. God's word had, had cursed. God's word had promised blessing here in Genesis 12. But now the scene is set for the day that's coming when God's word would become flesh and dwell among us and bring about the fulfillment that God promised all the way back here in Genesis chapter 12. So brothers and sisters, let's be encouraged that God is a promise-making God and that he is a promise-keeping God. There are never broken promises with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word this morning. We thank you that you have made such wonderful promises. Lord, we thank you that in Christ we find the fulfillment of those. And as we work our way through this series, we will see how that, that becomes reality. But Lord, even now as we think about these promises you made so long ago to this man, to this family, and his descendants, Father, it reminds us, looking in our shoes today, looking all the way back of how you have fulfilled your promises. You have kept your word. We, we can look today with confidence and hope that all of these promises you made so many, so many centuries ago have been kept. 
Father, would you encourage us in that this morning? Would you help us to understand that even when our circumstances may be bogging us down and our circumstances may be dis- discouraging us, we might find ourselves struggling in this world, just kind of uh, struggling to and fro and, and just, just everything around us seems to be in doubt or in question. Lord, would you just help us to see through the fog today? That no matter what our circumstances may be in the moment, Lord, that we can always take you at your word and know that you will bring about good for those to whom you've promised it. Father, would you, would you give faith where faith may be lacking? Father, maybe there are some here today that they've been trusting too much in themselves maybe solely in themselves. Maybe they've been trusting in others or in, in some kind of performance or some kind of good works to, to somehow, some way find favor with you. Lord, would you help them understand today that their great need is a need, it's, it's so great that they will never be able to compensate for, but their only hope is to cling to you in faith because you are the one and the only one that can bring about the very thing that we need our redemption. So Father, would you help them to see their need of you? Would you help them to see how they can come to you in faith and be given every blessing you've promised? Father, it may be that Christians in this room this morning are are just struggling. Maybe they're struggling with faith. Maybe they're struggling with so many other things or just disappointments and confusion and grief and, and turmoil in their lives. Lord, would you help them this morning to be comforted, to be reminded that Lord, you are a God whose word could be trusted. That even in these great sweeping blessings that we find here, if we can trust you in the big things, we can trust you in the small things as well and everything in between. So Father, would you help us to, to cling to you in faith that we may continue to walk with confidence and with joy, we pray. Thank you, Father, for this reminder today that you can be trusted and that your promises will prevail. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.